Today I welcome Rachel Hope, Deputy Director at the Department of Education in the UK. In this episode, I discuss teacher training qualifications, the biggest factors affecting teacher retention, how to cut teacher recruitment costs, and we look into the crystal ball to the future skills of teachers. Well, Rachel, you are the Deputy Director at the Department for Education. Can you give my listeners a brief idea of what your role entails? Yes. So my role at the Department for Education involves supporting the policies and the services that enable schools to recruit fantastic teachers and keep hold of those fantastic teachers. So we create and have created a number of services, for example, all the services that help someone apply to train to teach, as well as services such as teaching vacancies, which allows schools to recruit fantastic teachers. Is it all about teacher recruitment, teacher education, the policy around getting great teachers? Ultimately, we talk about our vision of excellent teachers for every child. How do you move the teaching so it's current and relevant for now, but not maybe not just for now, but for where we need to go? Is that part of what sits with you in the Department for Education too? A lot of my peers work on educating and offering training for existing teachers. So you've probably heard about the national professional qualifications that support people as they develop down different pathways within their teaching profession. So there are both specialist and leadership MPQs, which essentially, I always think about it as like scooping up all the wisdom which you have out there. So it builds on sector insight. It builds on the best available evidence base and then offers this training that supports teachers to either think about specific areas like behavior management or supports leaders to gain the knowledge they need, understand the behaviors they need, have the network they need to become a really high performing leader. And so some of my peers that work across this area are in the process of developing new MPQs. So you'll see them coming out and that really is starting to help people think about what else they might want to know or do throughout their career. I want to cover both retention and recruitment because this is a, you know, probably the two big areas that are always being talked around, particularly in UK education, but even beyond. Let's just talk about retention in schools and it, why it's so difficult right now. You know, why are teachers staying in their position for a shorter time than perhaps they used to maybe only one generation ago? Yeah, and that is definitely true. It's also true that there are a lot more opportunities out there and much more diverse opportunities that are available to this generation of teachers, which I think is fantastic. So just looking at the example of the change we've seen in terms of the growth of multi-academy trusts and what that's meant for someone who is in a multi-academy trust and the exposure to lots of different and new career pathways. I know from reading some of the evidence coming out from NFER, you can see that the amount of staff movement between schools in the same mat is more than 10 times higher than you'd see in terms of the amount of movement from two local schools anyway. So it really suggests that multi-academy trusts, these mats, have this internal labor market, which is somewhat distinct to what you see elsewhere. And it's allowing people to move around a lot more. What's also really interesting from the NFER report is that we're also seeing that when people are moving around more in these multi-academy trusts, you're seeing people move to schools which have a higher disadvantaged intake. So it seems like it's really benefiting getting excellent teachers in front of those who really need it most. 
And I think that movement, so that, that movement is actually, there's some really, really, really good things attached to that. So really great opportunities to share best practice, really great opportunities to share expertise across schools and have that much more collaborative approach to training and development. What we want to make sure is if teachers aren't staying in positions for as long, we're not losing them altogether, though. And that's where we've got to work really hard. And how do you stop that? Because, you know, people are not just leaving the profession. And I suppose there's two words. One is leaving the profession itself and deciding, you know, it's just too much. The other side is that you're losing a lot. The state side is losing a lot to the independent side, but not just the independent side in the UK. But what about internationally? Loads more schools are opening up all around the world. And they're enticed by better wages, better living standards, all the packages that you'd normally get with a corporation. How can we deal with them? So I'm a governor at a school as well. So we talk about how do we support our teachers a lot as a governing body and with the head teacher and her leadership team. And I think there are a number of different things. There always are a number of different things. One is to really put well-being at the center of how we create a great offer for our teachers. I think it's It's always been important, but with the pandemic, it's really shone a spotlight on making sure that we have really, really great offers for our teachers to make sure they feel great and they really enjoy coming to work every day. I think one of the things that we can really offer and probably go quite a lot further with in our school, but also in other schools, is around expanding and promoting flexible working opportunities. So being really open to conversations about flexible working will help teachers reflect what they need in their wider life while also coming and contributing really fully to the school and enabling us to essentially retain that teacher rather than thinking it's more appealing to go elsewhere. We have to, when we look at this, is also situate what's happening in teaching against what's happening in the wider labor market. Like the 21st century labor market now more than ever is expecting a really flexible working package. It was already moving in that direction before the pandemic, but the pandemic has just put that (laughs) at supersonic speed. And so now the expectations that I see a lot of graduates coming through is that they can work flexibly. And I think for both recruitment, but also retention, there's some way to go still for my school, but also other schools to really sort of step up and say, actually, teaching's great. It's got some holidays, but we can do even more to make this really fit with the wider life that you want. It's not all about corporate packages. It is about that day-to-day, being in a great school, delivering great things, but it working with your life. Yeah, absolutely. But the international schools that do have it, you know, you're still teaching, you're still inspiring young, young men and women, you're still doing all that stuff. You just feel like the lifestyle choice, particularly for a young teacher who's just coming maybe two or three years into the profession, is actually quite attractive. You mentioned obviously dealing with that as from a governance point of view. There's obviously things that governors can do individually within schools, but is there a greater need and how much do we need to shake up what teachers' workload is, whether it's curriculum, otherwise well-being, and all these things just become a checklist, don't they? They become the next new thing. We add it to a package rather than it being meaningful and embedded. Is that something that has to be done individually or is that something that maybe needs to be done more broadly across education? There's always both sides to workload, isn't there? Workload is very much at the forefront of discussions within the Department for Education, and there's assessments of what workload it might be adding when new policies come in. Equally, I've seen quite a lot of insight which says actually the real key actors who can really make a difference improving and driving down workload in, in those schools where it has become unmanageable is school leadership. And governors, thinking about my role as governor, can really support school leaders with that. 
and sort of ask and challenge what are your workload practices? How are you assessing what teachers have? What are you doing to remove duplication? I think there's a partnership across all parties to try and drive workload down where possible. One of the things I would reflect on of what I've seen, particularly over the number of years, and pandemic has been challenging, but hopefully all resettle was just before the pandemic, we'd started to see workload going down. The surveys were starting to see for the first time the number of hours work go down. The pandemic has made that challenging again. We can't, we're now we're coming out. I don't want to say this, say it tentatively say coming out the other side, life is feeling slightly more normal. We need to make sure we don't lose that real focus on improving workload because that is, again, hugely important to the quality of teachers' working lives. And I think everyone has a, a part to play in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the pandemic was just a perfect petri dish for us trying new things. But it has also shone that spotlight on human weakness. And, you know, burnout is a real thing. And with all best intentions, you know, our backs were against the wall. We dug in deep and we still wanted to deliver a brilliant education as best as we could do. We all just had to fight our way through it. But there was a human cost to it. There's a worry coming back to it, coming back to school, is that nothing really changes. And there's, there's some really good things that have happened though, over that pandemic period that can improve education. But I feel that there is probably some more, maybe there's around qualifications that we should maybe talk around. Is there some more that we could be doing to support teachers? So whether it's through professional national qualifications, they can improve their role for now and maybe on the back of the pandemic, as opposed to it's the same old qualifications. We haven't really moved on. I also think alongside the qualifications, it's been really interesting to see and explore what technology has enabled during the pandemic. Schools were very much in different starting places going into the pandemic. So for some, it may not have felt beyond everyone felt. Remote teaching felt different for everyone. Let's just <laughs> start there. The technology being used might not have felt that different for some schools, but for others, it might have been the first time they were setting materials up on various online classrooms. It might have been the first time things were being done interactively, but that will have suited some pupils and it might not have suited others. But we've learned there are some pupils who really benefit from these slight different ways of being interacted with. And we definitely don't want to lose that. So it's starting to think about, okay, if that pupil works a little bit better with time to look at things and sort of asynchronous contact with a teacher, how can we facilitate that as we come back into the classroom? There's quite a lot of work going on across the Department for Education to try and really accelerate the evidence base around the use of technology in the classroom and more broadly such that the gains, because there were definite gains that happened during the pandemic, are really sort of harnessed and carried forward. I think it was a real shift with the increased number of laptops that were provided and all of these new online classrooms like Google Classroom being used that we don't want to step back away from that. Well, also, I'm a huge advocate for libraries, also loving the good book <laughs> to go and pick up as well. But it's about making sure we have that blended approach and we're using it where it really, really adds value. And we do need it. I mean, I'm a big advocate of technology, but I'm also a big supporter of the human and recognizing that the technology does not solve all our problems and we've got to use it cleverly within whatever role that we have. Looking at the qualifications, do you feel that there are new qualifications that need to be created or are being created to support where we need to be based on the last couple of years? New skills to retain as well as to make sure we're at the forefront. There's lots of conversations around different qualifications that would be helpful. There are a few that are coming on 
stream later this year, which my colleague is currently developing. There are going to be two new MPQs coming on from later this year, one in leading literacy, a second called early years leadership. And I understand also that the department is consulting on the development of a Senko MPQ as well. So there's a third one on a sort of further horizon. So the early years leadership MPQ is going to be designed to fill a gap that's out there at the moment and essentially provide an offer for early years leaders or those aspiring to be an early years leader and wanting to step in that role with a qualification. And that qualification will essentially investigate early education, child development, has a focus on communication and language and physical development, as well as personal, social and emotional growth. And so that's basically been designed so that it sits in line with the early years foundation stage reforms that are happening. And then there's the leading literacy MPQ, which will explore the development of literacy skills, including the oral language. All of the things you'd expect in there, comprehension, spelling, written composition, etc. Leading literacy has also been developed for primary and secondary settings as well. So people should keep an eye out for those coming on later, which I'm quite excited about. I'll be cheering my peers over the line with that. Can we just talk about sort of timetabling and ongoing professional development that teachers get and maybe what's expected? Are teachers expected to do a certain number of hours per year on professional development? And do they have to pick from a set of predefined kind of modules or development that fits with where they are in their role, whether they're middle leaders, whether they're aspiring or whether it's subject leaders or they're new to the profession? Is there a mandated number of hours that they have to do So I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard people from the Department for Education, but government ministers particularly talk about the golden thread. So the golden thread of professional development, which is being put in place at the moment, so that's all the way from reforms of initial teacher training. So before you even fully qualified as a teacher and you're in a classroom doing training, there is a new set of expectations, a new framework around what is skills and capabilities you're supposed to have been able to gain during that year. And then with some abilities to vary as needed, but that gives everyone that sort of solid foundational base. Then as you start your career, you then enter the early career framework. You have your first year and then also your second year where you have a set number of hours off timetable to be able to go and do further training. And it's really, really important in those first two years to provide our early career teachers with time to go and do that development. It's a big step to step straight into a school and have your first class or many classes, depending on what type of role you're taking on. And that time off timetable, extending it into the second year, which the reforms have done, is really important. And then going through the golden thread, you've then got the MPQs, which we've talked about, which are for classroom teachers, as well as those going into leadership. And at different points in different time, you'll have different expectations of how much training you're doing versus how much teaching you're doing. But that framework now that is forming around the teacher journey, and I've got to be very careful because I don't want to imply it's a linear journey for many. And hopefully their career is, you know, their career, they'll jump around a bit in their career, but it gives people an understanding and expectation of what they can get and what they can go through. I encourage any of your listeners to have a Google, look at the early career framework if it applies to them, look at MPQs if it applies to them. Or if you're thinking of becoming a teacher, even better, even better, go and have a look at what initial teacher training offers on the Get Into Teaching website, and you'll see the sort of training expectations there. It does vary depending on where you are in your career. Before we get on to 
the recruitment and finding great new teachers and bringing them into the profession. Wrapping up the final point on professional development, is it the responsibility of the teacher to make sure that they get their hours in off timetable? Or is it the responsibility of the school? And are they mandated to report any of this? So do you have like a massive dashboard in front of you that gives you the, the kind of the tracking of every single teacher in the land and go, wow, you know, this is where they are in the middle leaders and the MPQs on the early years. You get to see how many hours. And if we're to change the quality of education and we have to care about the people in education, could we use something like that? Or is that something that's really school driven? You advise it's guidelines, it's not policy. Or is it mandated? What's really fantastic about a number of, and I would say it's a number of our new digital services, these digital services are hopefully not just making it easier for people to access training and development throughout their careers. We're also able to see how many people are taking up the different opportunities. And with that, there's an associated expectation of how many hours, and some mandated, yes, how many hours that teacher will be accessing to achieve that qualification or complete their early career framework. So we can start to you know, see what that is happening across the entire workforce. And you've probably seen the, some of the expectations of you know, another, there's going to be at least half a million new training opportunities that are coming on. So that has that ripple effect, that effect of all of those training opportunities, that those number of hours attached to them and that teachers taking part, that's a huge shift in people sort of stepping in and doing more training and qualifications because like you keep saying it's it's actually really fundamental to the health of the teaching workforce and when I'm sitting in my school where I'm a governor I'm always asking who's on what so we've got everything we've got someone who's doing an apprenticeship to become a teacher who's not yet in the teaching workforce we've got people on MPQs and I love just knocking on their door I probably drive them mad and saying how's it going how are you getting on and I think what's strikes me when I'm in a school is where it works best, come back to your point, is when it really is a partnership. So the A as a governor, I'm asking about it, but also the head teacher and the deputy head teacher, they know exactly who in their school is on what, and they're very supportive of it. And then they're given, the teacher themselves are given the space. And it might not always work like that, I appreciate, in every school, but that is what we're striving for, where training and education of existing teachers is really valued by the leadership and therefore the space and encouragement is given for that teacher to get out and do these qualifications. And then I think there's a real role on the department to keep making those opportunities available and spotting where the numbers aren't coming through and trying to take interventions to enable that to keep happening. Do you have any data and do schools provide data on why people leave the profession completely? Yeah, so we have, there are various things in the department, surveys and otherwise inciting why people may leave. It probably comes as no surprise that some of the top reasons, and they do vary and change, but the top reasons tend to be around workload. They tend to be around pain conditions and it tends to be around those sorts of things which is, is saddening when you read it, but it's also heartening in one way because there are some things we can do. We can try and make some of these better. And I say we in all my different hats and everyone listening. So, you know, the department, the governors, the trustees, the leaders of schools. What I think is the only the thing that we just have, all of us have to collectively keep in mind is these reasons haven't varied too much. 
So we do know the problems. So we really have to start tackling them. What we had seen and can see is that quite a lot of people leave the profession within the first few years up to the first five years of their career as a teacher. And so that's why I think it's so important this investment in the early career framework has gone in and this extra time off timetable, particularly in the second year has been implemented because hopefully that provides those who could have been absolutely fantastic teachers and spent many, many years with the profession may have felt a bit overwhelmed at the start and not decided to stay with us. I think that extra support will help. But then for more broadly for the profession, we do need to look at all of the conditions that make the day-to-day really, really attractive. I've had a number of friends who've been signed up with stress. It, it wasn't just one, isolated ones. And it's, you kind of look at it and but this is always in the state, never their counterparts in the independent sector. We feel that maybe they take on more responsibility because of cost, because of everything else. So everyone wears a lot more hats than probably they can do. And you get into teaching because you're passionate about empowering these young, these young men and women to go off and do something quite incredible. It's, it's a vocation they, it's always talked about. We're in danger of boiling this vocation, this love of educating the child because of almost like the administrative burdens that maybe big schools do. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Is there a case that we should be doing more public-private partnerships, not just private schools, but private business or enterprise to kind of come in because they look at it in a different way? And maybe there's something we could do to lean on because we're all in this together. You know, we all benefit. I just wonder whether or not that, you know, it's not an easy thing to crack, but whether or not it's stuff that you've had an opportunity to be involved in brainstorming ideas about how that could possibly work. I think that's a really interesting idea. And it reminds me of a lot of the work we were doing in further education. So we were looking at how we can form greater partnerships to bring more teachers into colleges for obvious reasons, because we wanted to bring a lot of those vocational skills in. But in trying to do that, we were forming partnerships with organizations which were benefiting colleges more broadly. So I think there's a really great idea in there that we could definitely explore further and look across the different ages, because it's the more different lenses you have. And I hate to come back to say it, you get a lot through governors. My, some of my governors, one of them works for a bank, another is a lawyer. They come with such varied and different ideas when we're looking at how we can improve the school. I think there's, there's a role where that is the sort of uh, hub of the idea, but how can it be expanded out? And I know a, a lot of my fellow governors sort of lean on their organizations and pull bits in, but I, you know, that probably isn't a, a uniform experience. And it's isolated because of interest and also where you can actually make most effects. It's your close community. Finding staff in the first place can be really costly. Do you have any top tips for helping schools to cut recruitment costs? It can be really costly. And we know that schools on average have been spending up to 75 million a year on recruitment. So yeah, this is something we absolutely need to focus on. So tips, instead of using the advertising agencies, schools can definitely turn and use to free alternatives. So I would talk about teaching vacancies, which is the digital service from the Department for Education. I mean, I think it's a great service. It costs schools absolutely nothing to use and it's nationally available. So since January 2022, there's been nearly 5 million jobs that have been viewed. So 5 million views of jobs. 
you've got a really good number of people using that service. And equally, when a school comes and places a job on teaching vacancies, that job is then picked up by search engines and promoted elsewhere. So if you Google teaching job in London, you'll see jobs advertised on teaching vacancies pop up under Google Jobs. So it has that sort of broader reach. And it also is supported by some of the department's marketing campaigns as well. So top tip number one, you know, since January 2022, you've had 5 million people looking at jobs on teaching vacancies. Get your job on there. It's free. Costs you nothing. Just do it. Tip number two is probably thinking about, we've talked quite a lot about what it means to have an attractive profession, but think about making your offer as attractive as possible. So we talked earlier actually about flexibility. And I think flexible working, so whether roles can be advertised as part-time or job shares, et cetera, can make it much more attractive to lots of varied people. And I think that's really important. I know on teaching vacancies, nearly one in five vacancies have been advertised as flexible. And that's since it was launched, which was before the pandemic. So I'm sure that number will be changing and going up to meet the sort of rise in demand for flexible roles. So definitely think about making your offer as attractive as possible. And then I guess final tip is less about recruitment. We talked about it already. It's about retention. I think retention is something I'm really, really passionate about in my governor role. And I think when we're thinking about really high demand subjects, or if we're in in an area that can be quite tricky to find people, one of the great way of saving costs on recruitment is invariably trying to keep your existing staff who have such knowledge and insight. And that's where some of the things we've talked about come in, like making sure that they have access to really great training material, like go and do an MPQ, meet other people. Sometimes when you step out of the classroom, you remember how privileged you are to be in the classroom. And I think going away and doing some of the training, it really offers you that perspective, as well as all the great content that you get on those training courses. I think they're excellent tips. Yeah, if schools aren't on teaching vacancies, then they need to be. There's no question if it's a free service and it offers teaching jobs and vacancies, then why would you not be putting your job on there? Save your school some money. And you talk about retention. I talk about retention a lot when I go to schools, maybe from it's even from a parent retention, a family retention. We've got to give them a good experience. Stop worrying about the acquisition, the new, new, new. You know, look after what's inside because you can make a difference. It's the work-life balance packages, caring about the individual, all the things you've talked about. And I completely agree. And we've got to make it as enticing. And we work with a lot of schools in trying to get them to own their story. And my my purpose in our business is inspiring schools to share their story because I fundamentally believe that every school on the planet is different. They just find it very difficult to articulate it because they feel quite corporate and they have to say the same things. But actually, the authentic piece is them owning their story. And that's really good for teacher recruitment, too, because if I'm thinking about joining your school, I want to kind of go, wow, I want to be part of that. That looks like an incredible place to be. And then when we get them inside, we also give them skills and we help schools train them on modern kind of communication techniques, whether it's through social. So they own their story because that's why they get into it. And so suddenly they have a platform for professional development to be able to own their story. And then that drives retention because they're proud of what they do and also elevates them. And they get all those kind of little dopamine hits because parents go, oh, thanks ever so much for sharing that. The kids are going, wow, thanks, sir. Or thanks, miss. That was, you know, they see themselves because that's very modern and current. I love that. Yeah, and it's something I, I want to drive a lot more. And so we work with schools to do it because they hate change. And they're not designed to post or to tweet or to do these things. It's not why they've got into teaching. And I often go back to the teaching qualification and what I'm doing, trying to do with teachers in schools is go, we'll give you that. 
And maybe that's something they've got to do is we've got to give them some more modern skills to change the perception of what the role is to go, actually, you've got more currency now to be a better teacher, to be a better adult and possibly be a better parent. Because without these skills, you know, we all hold these devices in our hands. We end up educating them in a different way because our kids have the knowledge in these boxes, these little black things we carry around. We've got to teach them something different. How do we go about um, recruiting excellent teachers? I love inspiring teachers, but I know that's just a step too far because not every teacher is inspiring. But how do we ensure we're recruiting excellent teachers and we're not just recruiting people who can't get a job elsewhere? I mean, one thing we probably should say is I think schools are already doing a really, really great job at recruiting excellent teachers. I think we have a brilliant workforce out there. I did really read something, though, that's quite interesting for schools, perhaps your listeners to reflect on, which was that there was some research which suggested that one in five teachers say job interviews is the hardest part of their early careers development. So there's definitely something schools can do to support candidates through the process. So helping candidates feel themselves, be comfortable, be supported during interviews. And I think it's also important for those who are doing the interviewing to come prepared. We expect the job seekers, <laughs> we expect the candidates to rock up and know all about our schools and show enthusiasm for them. I think there's the two-way street of then showing we've really read their applications and their CVs and asked really tailored questions about their experience so we can really see the best of those people who are coming through. So we can ensure that we continually get really, really excellent people to come into the workforce because like you say, it is a vocation for many. And so many, I've met children in school who, when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say a teacher. Like We want to make sure we don't lose that in the journey through the rest of their education. We can pull them back and bring them into the teaching workforce. And I think having really, really great experience interview, and it, and it does worry me that one in five say that's the hardest aspect. Yeah, amazing. And so it's funny, who do you want to be? Because when they hit their early teens, they're a YouTuber and Instagrammer, and then they're a TikToker. And then they want to set up their own business. They're all entrepreneurs. And it's, it, this is brilliant, but that's their sea that they swim in. But what we've got to do, and I kind of want to look into the crystal ball now, because I talk a lot around the future school, and I love it. I love just kind of provoking the thought, but also looking at what the world needs and going, how can education adjust? We're a bit shackled by the education curriculum, the model. I don't think it's fit for purpose, but this is not our platform to talk about. I want us to look into your crystal ball and go, if we're now recruiting teachers for the future school, whatever that means, and you could create some new qualifications or you already think of them, what would they have and what would it include? This gives me a chance to, to say again that there are some really great national professional qualifications out there and the two new ones coming on with leading literacy and early years leadership, which I think is really important. And obviously, hopefully coming behind the SENCO MPQ. If I was to go even more broadly, like, a lot of what people are learning in terms of training to become teachers and training while they are teachers are going to be fundamental throughout. And maybe that's a more answer. I think it is fundamental throughout. I think where we can go further and where I think I really see pupils come alive is hearing different voices as well. So I think it's alongside teachers. It doesn't have to be teachers themselves, or it can be. Teachers who've had other careers, but bringing people in who've had really interesting lives. A bit like going to a book festival when you hear authors talk about why they've written their fantastic novel or why they've written a book about their lives because their lives have been so interesting. I think those personalities in the classroom are really important for pupils to hear and see and do. And it doesn't have to be every day. And I think particularly when those personalities enter the classroom, being able to show their 
respect for their teacher and being able to reflect on how where they've got where they are because of a lot of a lot of them will reflect on the fantastic teachers. We all know and remember now the moment Adele stood up on the stage and said that she got there because of her teacher and her teacher was in the audience and she came up and it was a really wonderful moment. Just reminded the teaching profession and many pupils out there just the absolute brilliant role that teachers fulfill. So let's keep all the fantastic stuff that teachers do and let's supplement that with like some additional voices who can really inspire children to be the best for them. Are you optimistic about the future of education? I am. I really am. And I'm optimistic because of people like you. I'm optimistic because of people that I see across the entire education sector. There isn't anyone I meet who doesn't want to make things better. Sometimes it can feel hard. Most of the time, people are really striving day by day to make improvements. So I'm really optimistic. And I think it's something that as a society, we haven't, we continue to place real importance on. I'm optimistic too, but I do attend too many forums, too many conversations, too many conferences where there's a lot of people talking good things, but there's, it's very hard to act on it. We all believe that it needs to shift. We all know that the curriculum needs to change. We're all arguing about that, you know, how many GCSEs is enough GCSEs and whether it's still relevant. Do we free up more time to make more character skills, some more human skills through empathy and other kind of skills that maybe employers want? Almost unshackling ourselves from the need that we have to get through education to go off to university. Because now, actually, jobs are providing a much better experience than you get at university. Not always, but they are now challenging that piece. The next bit we've got to get on is less talk and it's action, but it's hard to change. And I think it's change normally comes with bite-sized chunks. And sometimes we think of the future vision and it feels too far away and we get a bit lost talking about it when it's a thing. But if we can pick out some tangible bite-sized things, it will move us there would be my big thing. And then obviously having a shared view of where we're going. So if we're all pulling in the same direction, we'll get there a hell of a lot faster. Yeah, I agree. And we've had a really good kind of catalyst because we've been forced to go and like to try new things. As I said, we weren't expected to come at it very well, but we have come out with some really great skills, some really great learning, some really great ways in which to deliver education that could be more flexible, adaptable and accessible, not just to the people within my locality who can walk to my school, but actually those beyond. So I believe we've got to use this impetus now to not go back to where we were. So fingers crossed. Rachel, it's been fantastic to speak to you. Thanks ever so much for finding the time. Good luck in your new role. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.